The History with Jackson podcast. Hello, and welcome back to History with Jackson, the home of accessible and digestible history. Now, I'm your host, Jackson, and in today's episode, today's special Christmas episode being released on Christmas Eve, we are talking to historian Andrew Hubert all about his book with his late wife, Maria. A wartime Christmas. Now, firstly, I want to say thank you to, to History Press for sending me a copy of this book. But this episode, we have a great conversation with Andrew about his own Christmas traditions and how that developed out of the wartime. We also look at different facets of World War II Christmases. So, those for children or those on the home front, or as he calls it within the book, the kitchen front. Now, I'm excited to share this episode with you and I know you're going to enjoy it. I won't cram any History Jackson propaganda or marketing with you today. Instead, I will just leave you in the Christmassy hands of Andrew. Hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast and I hope everyone's having a great Christmas Eve because today we have our Christmas special episode on the podcast where we're talking to historian Andrew Hubert all about his book, A Wartime Christmas, how are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing fine and uh, looking forward to Christmas myself because we will have a Polish Christmas Eve as we always have had in my family since the last years of the war. Well, from what we were talking about just before the podcast, I think your your Polish Christmas Eve sounds really, really quite amazing. And I'm very jealous that you're experiencing it and I'm not. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, uh, I think a lot of Poles today would look at our celebration and thinking, hang on, it's not quite what we do. But Mars was sort of evolved by my mother trying to cheer up my father, who got very, very miserable uh, over Christmas. And because his last Christmas in Poland was spent singing Christmas carols um, when he was uh, arrested to drown out the sounds of men being beaten up and shot. So um, it's quite important to try and do something for the poor devil. Yeah, hopefully it did cheer him up and it it made him it, it made him feel better on that day. Now, the first question I want to ask you, Andrew, is you, know, you wrote this book with your your wife Maria. Now, what was the inspiration behind you and Maria writing this book together? Well, we we'd done Mummish for Christmas, and then um, that was in ninety four, and in early ninety five. I got hold of the uh, publishers, uh, part of the History Press, Alan Sutton, and said, are you doing anything for um, the 40th anniversary of VE Day? And they said, oh, I haven't thought of that. So they said, we'll do it. And they said, well, we haven't got time. This is now April, and our deadline, publishing deadline's in June. I said, no problem. And basically, we did a lot of research and came and um, got it all sorted out and delivered inside... Um, um, inside eight weeks and they were delighted obviously this so, uh, book how how were you able to write this book in in eight weeks given the amount of research and the amount of interviews because we have you told me a great story before we jumped on recording well the thing is um a lot of the a lot of it was already in the in both our heads really um maria's father had been with the out in the western desert uh, he'd been through dunkirk and he was a very reticent man but he'd already told us something and my father, uh, once he got going, he couldn't stop. 
And so I was getting all the stories about what happened when he was sent to Siberia, how he escaped to Iran, how he joined the Royal Air Force, how he flew Spitfires, the Polish squadron. I, my grandmother died in 1953, but I do remember her telling me stories. And of course, my mother was absolutely amazing. And between us, Maria and I, with our interest in Christmas, our shared interest in Christmas, her having her Yorkshire Christmas and me having this Polish Christmas, it was a more or less a natural progression. She was a sort of natural historian. She'd been in a convent where they are actually, they preserve tradition. They preserve writing. So it was fairly natural for her. She'd actually studied history anyway. For me, it was carrying the burden of stories from my father, from his contemporaries, and the people I worked with in the Met Office and Air Traffic Control who'd been through things like World War II, Korea, um, and then much later, things like Aden, Cyprus, the Christmas Island test. And they had talk. Uh, I've got one of those memories that just retain stories. So I had a really, really good starting point. And then through a number of service associations, we just rang them up and said, we'll after Christmas stories. And it was like a dam breaking. People were just throwing stories at us from all sorts of places, some of them very unusual, like Burma over the Arakan and uh, the Mormites' convoys and the Western Desert, uh, what it's like in the Far East, what it was like in North Africa, what it was like in Italy, what it was like on the home front, what it was like growing your own vegetables, what it was like digging for victory, and all the things that went wrong. And, and surprisingly, the ones who were called up for service who weren't used to it, and effectively spending the first Christmases away from home. All those things were there. And it was more a question of editing than anything else and getting it down to a size. And the volume of photographs we were sent was unbelievable. Uh, and this book, oddly enough, I, which I don't know if you all read, your listeners have heard it, I've seen it. That's the cover anyway. And this is the photo of my poor old dad um, when he was um, wound up in Tashkent. But there were a lot of photographs like that. And we we edited them down and we got it stuck together, sent it off to the to Anne and Sutton's. They were absolutely astonished and they loved it. And it, they just published it and it went to second I think it went to second and third editions. And the funny thing is, I was contacted by um uh Radio Four and Michael Burke um, was doing a programme, Christmas Under Fire, was evolved on that, and so I contributed to that afterwards. And surprisingly, I was invited to um, um, the launch of an exhibition at the Imperial War Museum, uh, with, um, which was post-1945 conflict. It was launched by Margaret Thatcher. And I got talking with Kate Adey, uh, the BBC correspondent, a really nice lady, lots of stories. And you know, it's funny, this has become an onward process. So it didn't just stop with wartime Christmas. It's become a sort of a life's mission, whether I wanted it or not. How how were you able to choose? Because obviously you've got so many stories given to you. How were you both able to choose which stories and which pictures made it into the book? Variety, really. Um, inevitably, got an awful lot of ones of dads talking about square bashing and all the rest of it. And many of the stories had remarkable similarities. But it's the ones that really stuck out, like the poor devil who met a Russian girl in Mormaisk and had hopes of marrying her. Like my late father-in-law, Western Desert, no Christmas tree, and somebody found an old umbrella, which they managed to decorate with bits of silver paper. Um, 
my dad, of course, with sort of singing Christmas carols to drown out the sounds of people being tortured. Um, the chap who flew Spitfires over the Arakan in, in Burma, trying to make some sense of something like a Christmas where literally thousands of miles from home. And so the, we started with the very, very unusual and worked backwards. And then, of course, on the home front, the stories that were quite odd, like my um, my uh, grandmother using liquid paraffin instead of a butter, which was on ration to make Christmas cakes and the like, with terrible effects on <laughs> people who ate them. Uh, and weird stories. Um, there's one which uh, I loved. The first encounters with English ladies and the, the Poles trying to impress them uh, and, and um, wondering what on earth the British Christmas was all about. It was very different. And I mean, some stories emerged afterwards. There's this lovely story of my father and a friend of his. They were at a sort of little do being run by the, uh, what was then the Women's Voluntary Service. And there was a remarkable lady named Mrs. Rose Hall, who was of certain years, squeezed into this uniform with a great mantle shelf bed, bosom, a wonderful lady, very, very grand, with a very good sense of humour, I might add. And um, my father didn't speak very good English, but his friend Giggle did. He was completely mystified by this uniform. And he said to Mrs. Rosehall, excuse, please, beautiful lady, what means uniform? And she said, this, this, this is the uniform of the Women's Voluntary Service. And Giggle looked completely mystified. Then suddenly the light dawned. He said, oh, I see. In Poland, we had to pay. <laughs> so, I mean, these are the things that happen. War is a weird thing. I remember Kate Hady saying to me, people think, even in a modern war, you're there and you're fighting the whole time. But 90% of war is boring. Sitting, waiting, having orders, being trained, feeling bitterly cold, in filthy weather. And I mean, there's one story, um, which, you know, I thought it was apocryphal, but I've since heard that it really did happen. Um, it's in the book. There were um, some ground crew at a dispersal in the wilds of Lincolnshire. And it was, I think it was Christmas 43 or 44, but it was miserable. And you, you were staying in a Nissan hut which if most people don't really know what a Nissan hut is, it's a sort of semicircle, a sort of cylinder of corrugated iron, but they offer nothing more than tarred paper and wood at either end, bitterly cold. And your heating consists of a small, a small stove, often burning coke, which I think would be illegal today because of the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning. And these poor sods have been sitting around. They've been, you used to work a 24-hour duty period. I well remember that from my days in Met Office and Air Traffic Control. Utter misery, those are. Um, and you're, they'd done everything they're supposed to do. Their aircraft was serviceable. And they'd been given a 12-hour pass. So they cycled into the nearest village looking for some sort of sustenance. And beer wasn't on ration. So they were going to the pub and they saw on a village duck pond, a goose, which was not very common because most of the geese were being actually farmed. And one said to these others, Here, Bert, you was a butcher before the war. Do you reckon we could grab that goose and have it for our Christmas dinner? Yeah, I don't see why not. So he went and grabbed the goose, was throttling it, went, someone shouted, the policeman's coming. 
So he opened his barathea, this sort of battle dress, and stuffed this goose down inside, buttoned it up. And they went into the pub. And uh, there was a landlord there and a rather blousy sort of barmaid. And they ordered two, three pints of bitter or whatever it was. Landlord went out to do something, maybe reconnect barrels. And he suddenly heard this terrible scream and um, came running back. And there was the barmaid in a dead faint on the floor. Else, else, what's the matter, else? What's happened? And she couldn't bring around. Oh, God, this means brandy. And there were the three abandoned pints of beer on the counter. They knew something was up. So he tipped some brandy down the poor girl's throat, who eventually revived. Uh, revived. Oh, it's terrible, terrible. What was terrible? What was terrible? Oh, I can't tell you, it's awful. And he had, suddenly had an inspiration. He said, oh, well, come on now. You're a big girl now. You've seen that sort of thing before. One of them exposed himself, didn't he? he said, I know, but I've never seen one that picked himself up and took a biscuit off the counter. <laughs> so... <laughs> And that is pretty well wartime humour. And it was a lot like that. And I strongly recommend, if no one's read it, um, Spike Milligan's Adolf Hitler, My my Part in His Downfall. It's heartwarming. It's tear-jerking at times. But it's absolutely very, very funny indeed in parts. And that actually was most people's wartime experience. It was not at all unusual for us, for people to meet each other. And I remember this in the 50s. Oh, hello, George. What what sort of war did you have? Oh, I had a good war. And you think, a good war? And that usually meant promotion or you had a cushy number. I remember, oh, not all that long ago. Well, he was now dead. We, I say not all that long ago, but it's actually 30 years ago now. It was Captain Jim. He said, I had the best seat in the house during the war. I said, why? He said, I was a radar controller on a ship at the landings at Anzio. So I had a grandstand view without any of the risk. And, you know, we tend to forget that behind every fighting man, there were probably about 20 or 30 support staff. We made sure the rifles were delivered, that ammo was supplied, that, that everything was done. And it was also the mobilisation of the civilian population. Um, a lot of people don't realise from about the age of 15 um, a boy who was not actually destined for great things and had good academic qualifications could so easily be directed in things like the mines or helping out in a factory. And women were directed into factories. Uh, my late mother-in-law, she hated it, but she found herself in a, um, up in Leeds. She was in an armaments factory, and the thing she hated was having to wear a hairnet so your hair didn't get caught up in the uh, machinery. Really didn't like that. And, of course, all the men were wolf whistling. But gradually, as the war went on, the number of men, men dwindled and as more and more women were promoted to some very, very skilled positions. And this held true throughout the war. And, of course, the problem was the moment the war was over, all the men came back wanting their old jobs and the women were sort of being pushed back into the kitchen, which is many of them did, did not like at all. Now, my mother, she had a facility for, for French and she was just told upon she was going to go to London University and she was told to report to the Foreign Office. She had no idea why. She didn't know where this came from. And she uh, was talking to some people. They said, well, you've got to sign the Official Secrets Act first. And she had no idea, idea what the Official Secrets Act was. She was 19 years old. And um, then they said, right, you'll find yourself in the traffic office. And she thought, I don't know anything about cars. 
and it was she was sent off to Bletchley Park and she was actually handling signals coming from all over the world and finding them, make sure they got the right way, making sure they went to the right decoder and all the rest of it. Uh, sometimes she got things a bit wrong. She got um, degrees west and degrees east about Mudlark once, and there was a Japanese weather report, which instead of coming from the middle of Indonesia, sounded if it came from Sierra Leone, and they thought the Japanese had invaded West Africa. <laughs> but, but, I mean, these the it, it was a total disruption of life. Christmas was the one thing people tried to hang on to. It was the one connection with family, home, and the way things were before, and became increasingly important. The celebration was so, so, so limited. In many cases, like my father's squadron and many other Polish squadrons, it couldn't really have a Polish Christmas Eve on the squadron, but at least the chaplain would say mass, and that was important. Well, you've made a really nice you made a really nice point there about the the disruption of of everyone's life, mass mobilisation, and people behind everyone. The first Christmas in nineteen thirty nine, what was that like? Because you've then got loads of people going off to war. You've got a disrupted home life. Some children celebrating their first Christmas without their families, without their parents or their dad. What was that first Christmas like, both on the home front and on the war front? Well, that's the weird part. Um, a lot of children were evacuated and they're sent to extremely unfamiliar homes. I've had accounts of children finding themselves in almost all Welsh-speaking homes in West Wales, for instance, from the east end of London. And there was a huge cultural divide. And there was nothing familiar for the evacuees. And that really left uh, a huge wound for many of them, which persisted right in many cases right to the end of their lives. Um, others who, in the rural areas, they thought it was all going to be much the same as before. And unless the parents were in the position of keeping chickens or digging their own vegetables or buying actually from someone who had an allotment, was a very common one, um, then Christmas was noticeable by the paucity of presents, uh, there's limitations on food. And if Dad hadn't been called up yet, he was going to be. And so was older brother. And so there was a sort of a panic nostalgia is the way I, I think I could describe it. Desperately trying to make it seem normal, although it wasn't going to be normal. But by Christmas 1939, the war hadn't really bitten. And most people had no real idea what they were letting themselves in for. There was no mass bombing at that point, except, of course, in Poland. And the um, the French were more or less sitting uh, on their hands without actually taking action against Germany. At one time, Germany was most vulnerable. And so that Christmas passed with more or less anyone sitting, sitting tight and trying to create uh, a Christmas that had some sort of relevance to what went before. Uh, opportunities were missed. And yet, if you get to, say, Christmas 1944, the last wartime Christmas, it's as almost in military terms as if it didn't happen. People were flying missions in 19, Christmas Day, 1944. They were bombing people on Christmas Day, 1944. There was no, there were no um, truces as we had in, uh, uh, in in Christmas 1914, for instance. There was no question of um, German and French and British troops playing football together. That just didn't happen. People, as it were, learnt their lesson. 
the First World War had been the first example of total war. And for the first time ever, people in this country had seen um, strange aircraft in the sky dropping bombs on them. I mean, it was nothing like World War II. And so people were already frightened. And you will, as a historian, you'll be familiar with this. There's something called the Duet theory that actually believed that you could bomb and destroy a complete city in three days. And that persisted. The idea was the bomber would always get through and you just put a um, um, phenomenal number of guns on it and it would blow everything else, defending aircraft out of the sky. And people were scared silly. When the air, air, raid wardens, air raid warnings went off, they took to their Anderson shelters in the back garden or underneath the beds or whatever. And the sad part about it is that through that Christmas, people were becoming normalised and becoming a little bit more blasé. So by the next Christmas, 1940, and of course into 1941, when the so-called Blitz, there's a misnomer for you because Blitz is lightning war, <laughs> um, happened, they had become blasé. They were people in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the lessons were really hard learned. And there probably were more casualties than there should have been because Christmas 1939 had given them a false sense of security. It's it's really nice that you're mentioning about how there wasn't just peace on Christmas. I think that's a lot of that's a misconception that a lot of people have during yes. war is that there's Christmas is peace, people don't harm and don't don't bomb others, and it did happen and it did cause a lot of misery, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering for an yes, awful lot of people. And there's another part of Christmas that I kind of want to touch on. You've alluded to it um, in some of your earlier stories. It's the, and it's a story in your book where you mention it's the kitchen front. Now, a big part of Christmas is, is food, um, but food during wars is quite difficult. And my granddad always says to me, I, I didn't see a banana until, I never get past that until, but he always tells me I never saw a banana until a certain age. What challenges with rationing uh, and with bombing campaigns was there on the the kitchen front when it came to cooking Christmas dinner? We've we've alluded to it slightly with uh, those men stealing the goose, um, your your grandmother using different uh, ingredients to make her cakes. <laughs> what challenges were there? The challenges were largely because of food and supply. You must understand that all means of transport, every single means of transport, were given priority to the movement of military goods and personnel. So even if somebody had leave over Christmas, there's no guarantee that they would actually arrive in time for Christmas. It wouldn't be at all uncommon for some poor devil with a 48-hour pass thinking he could get back to mum and dad for Christmas to find he spent the entire 48 hours on the train going one direction and turning around immediately and going back in the other direction. There was disruption. Before we even get to the disruption caused by bombing, it's the sheer overloading of the system, where you get thousands of tons of uh, military goods going in one direction, taking priority at a junction uh, with over the passenger trains. And so this, unless the passenger trains were full of soldiers. So this was already disrupted. Rationing hadn't started to bite in 39, but it was realised it was going to be out there. So people were making hay while the sunshine sun shone, and they were laying in stores. We didn't have freezers. Most people didn't have fridges. 
and so they were del- they were very much reliant on, on the um, um, delivery of um, fresh goods. And then when rationing started to bite, you went with your your ration book and your coupons to see what you could get, and there'd be long long queues at a butcher. And there was a, a a thing where, you know, you'd send perhaps the most attractive girl from the family to try and chat up the butcher in the hopes he might have had something under the counter or something black market. There was a black market. Uh, the black market was occasionally with things like cheese, that sort of thing, but not often. Uh, it was more likely to be a black market in per- perfume, stockings, that sort of thing, which is the high value goods. But even so, there was a there was a sort of black economy going along, with somebody had an excess of one thing, and they're handing on to another. Uh, farmers holding back what their production actually had been, and flogging it off under the, uh, locally. This went on. It became very difficult actually, because before long, people realised we're all in an absolute pickle, uh, and we got to start bailing each other out. And but the first thing I think. Most children would have noticed, and I think the children would have noticed more than anything, was the unavailability of toys. Many of the toy manufacturers were redirected to war production. I know it sounds extraordinary, but it's true. Uh, you know, people who are familiar with sort of fabricating tin, the wind up tin toys, that obviously has an application in, in, in aircraft production. We're doing the same in aluminium. And I'm much reminded, I mean, it's slightly tangential, but when de Havilland came up with the idea of the mosquito, they went and looked for the most underemployed people of the lot, which were cabinet makers and piano makers, and they then actually created this amazing aircraft out of wood using their techniques of veneer and various other things to such an extent that by Christmas 1943, I think it was, Goering was cursing and swearing at his generals and saying, they get all the cabinet member makers and carpenters. And they make this magnificent aircraft. We can't catch. We have the best engineers in the world and we can't do anything with it. I want a mosquito. So, I mean, everything was grist to the wartime mill. Food production. Food, first and foremost, went to fighting men. Then the likes of Magnus Pike and a wonderful lady named um, uh, Bethwin Hale. Uh, who taught my son. She was a, a home economist under um, uh, Magnus Pike, worked out what the minimum requirement was needed to keep people going. And pregnant mothers had a priority. And one of the things they discovered is that Christmas 39, um, suddenly pickled walnuts appeared everywhere because of a high source of vitamin C that very few people were picking. And they sent out, I'm not joking, this is quite true, it's a story I heard after Wartime Christmas was published as a result of it. They sent out teams of uh, young lads to climb walnut trees and they would find them in vicarage gardens. They were very popular in vicarage gardens, God knows why. And many of the walnuts were just too hard to eat. And they shook them all down and they pickled them because they're rich source of vitamin C. And so you could have a, a pregnant mother in the East End wondering what on earth she's going to do with this jar of pickled walnuts. And the answer was, it's your source of vitamin C, madam. Then we'll take it. Because vitamin C usually deteriorates with stuff that has actually been hanging around for a while. But by pickling these, you could preserve it. And you'd have um, little brown pills 
Some people, many people know this, but I do remember them, which were supplements for women and girls particularly, which were iron tablets and vitamin C tablets. And they looked awful and they tasted worse. And this was a way of just making sure that the whatever the food didn't provide, these pills did. And in some ways in this country, I suppose it's the beginning of the supplements industry, which grew up after the war. But it was a necessity. And then, of course, you had the beginnings of the clinics for children, whereby you were trying to avoid things like rickets. And so you'd get orange juice. And I, I remember going up to clinics in the, in the, in the 40s and 50s, and, and the sort of the, the free orange juice was absolutely wonderful. It was condensed, and you had to sort of water it down. But these children particularly would have noticed these, and things would have been held back, believe it or not, off the ration because their orange juice would, would actually keep. And it would be rolled out at Christmas time, so it suddenly became a bit of a treat. And everyone was hard up. Please understand this. Every, the, the standard of living was very, very much lower than even the lowest standard of living that we have now. Outside loos were common. And um, you, the idea of a shower, most people never had a shower. Uh, it was a bath maybe once a week. And you had, um, the standard of living was that much lower and you wanted to do something special at Christmas. So little bits will be held and harvested, held back for the celebration. Um, you made do and mended. You, you, paper chains were a very popular thing. So you had bits of strips of gummed coloured paper, which you then turned into chains. So your decorations looked very, very measly. However, I, I want you to understand, I want everyone to understand that on the home front particularly, the standard of health went up during the war, the standard of nutrition went up during the war because we had directed food policy. You were going to eat a certain amount of butter, you were going to eat a certain amount of cheese, you were going to eat a certain amount of bread and so on. And so people who basically only had a stodge diet prior to that suddenly found themselves being off things which gave them good nutrition. Now, there was a bit of... Machiavellian thinking here, because the healthier your population is, the better quality soldiers and cannon fodder you get. So this wasn't entirely altruistic. There's a very, very good reason behind it. And Christmas, if you could give a few treats at Christmas from what you held back from your ration, you would. And the government would encourage that, because by keeping the morale up, the fighting spirit goes up, um, people are in better shape and somebody who's actually had a Christmas at home is probably in a better position to fight later on. So strategic planning was behind absolutely every aspect of our lives, even at Christmas time. And it's really nice to see people getting some of those treats at Christmas because it kind of keeps that, as you said, keeps that Christmas yeah. spirit up. Uh, yeah. But I think a pickled walnut does sound a bit strange, and I, <laughs> I don't think that would be on top of a lot of people's list. Try one, do I recommend it? <laughs> now, I have a final fun question for you, Andrew, as I do for all the guests here on the podcast. Now it is Christmas time, and I want to ask you, what is your favourite Christmas tradition, and why? Well, curious enough, 
Uh, unsurprisingly, the Polish Christmas Eve is big for us. But <laughs> there's a tradition I've evolved uh, with my lovely new wife, Kathy, because um, Maria died in 2007. I've been very, very lucky at this time in my, my, my life. And it's that our parish priest is as busy as anything over Christmas. And the poor devil, he has to say midnight mass and then mass in the morning, all the rest of it. So we give him a post-Christmas Christmas because he's going around, sort of he's visiting the sick. He's, he's actually worked off his feet. So usually about the sort of 29th or 30th, we bring poor Father Nick up here and we actually lay on a late Christmas Eve along with a Christmas dinner for him. And one of the things we do in the Polish family is a płatek, which is um, a wafer, which you buy at Christmas time. It usually has embossed on it um, the Holy Family, something like that. And you break it and you offer per, per person good fortune. And so if you've got someone who's doing their A-levels, you hope they pass their A-levels. Or a young couple are going to get married, you say, I hope they have a happy married life and so on. So you make a wish. And we do this for Father Nick, and he does the same for us. And then you send this wafer to other estranged members of the family, wherever they are. So you're sort of sharing in something. So it, it, I would say it's a displaced Christmas Eve. But the point is, we always say to him, it's old Christmas, because, of course, the calendar changed in the 18th century. And we lost six days. So he's really having his Christmas on the old Christmas. But that, I think, I would say is my favourite Christmas tradition. It's something that we transplanted from something traditional in our own family for the good of somebody else. I think that's really, really nice. I think that's a really lovely tradition. I'm sure Father Nick really enjoys it himself as well. He does, actually. He looks forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, people are going to want to go away, grab a copy of your book, learn more about Christmas at wartime. So where can people grab a copy of A Wartime Christmas? And, because you've also writ, uh, written some other books, where can they grab a copy of your other works as well? Well, the, all our books are published by the History Press. I mean, we've done such things, Jane Austen's Christmas, which I revised this year, along with wartime. Next year is uh, my magnum opus, which is um, Gulag to Spitfire, which, unsurprising, a story of my father being sent to Siberia and then wandering off, getting off to a point where he can fly Spitfires. That's going to be a biggie. Um, but if you look online through Amazon for anything else or ask at your local bookshop, for instance, we've got a lovely little book, bookshop here in Monmouth, called Stephen's Bookshop. And I said, have you stopped wartime Christmas? She said, no. Hold on, I'll look it up. And then and there, she ordered wartime Christmas and Jane Austen's Christmas. They came up the next day and then in the shop window. So if you can't see it, ask. Um, History Press are really good at delivering. Uh, and they're lovely people to work with. Uh, nicest publishers I've ever come across. They And they um, they will deliver. And Amazon will almost certainly get a copy to you within two days. So look online, A Wartime Christmas or any other Christmas books. Look at their entire list. They've got masses of Christmas books. Well, I'll make sure a link for A Wartime Christmas in the description below so people can go direct and order it in an easy way. And if people want to tell you some of their wartime stories, their wartime Christmas stories, or interact with you, how can they do that? Well, I've got uh, – this is something that's actually coming along. Uh, I'm – working a lot with a company on social media and also a PR company. If you look up Andrew Hubert von Stauffer, 
which is my full name. It sounds strange having a German name being a Polish extraction, but in fact, it was originally Hubert Stauffer, which no one can pronounce, and it's a Polish version of von Stauffer. His old, old title goes back God knows when. But the, um, as they look, um, if they look up on Facebook, they can find me, they can, they can uh, direct message me. Um, and also Vintermann, V-I-N-T-E-R-R-M-A-N-N, is going to be the big way of connecting with me and, and my books uh, and a lot of other stuff besides. And if anyone out there has got some odd memories, post them on Facebook and send me a link, please. Because all this grist to our mill, we need to share things. Christmas is a time of sharing. It's not just about presents or even food for that matter, share memories. That wartime generation is largely past. But that doesn't mean to say the generations that come since then have no value. They all have a value. They all have a value. Share your memories. It shares goodwill. And please do that. And not just contact with me through Facebook, but anybody else. You have no idea the good you will do by sharing a memory. I think that's a really nice point there to share memories and, and, and to tell people the stories because I've learned so much from my, my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents, they've told me their stories of growing up and and particularly from my granddad of him telling me about my great-grandparents. So I think that's a really lovely point to, to end with. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jackson. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the History Jackson podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to Andrew talk about his book, A Wartime Christmas, that he wrote with his late wife, Maria. Now, we here at History Jackson wish you the merriest of Christmases, and we thank you for listening to this episode. <laughs>